Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This week I'm back with Anirban and we're talking about takeovers. We jumped onto Twitter and got some great feedback from listeners and investors who um, tried to identify some of their favorite ASX listed takeover targets or potential takeover targets. We also talk about the space race. We talk about um, what Anirban's been working on, which is the payments in emerging markets and how they might leapfrog traditional developed markets in terms of the technology. We talk about Sydney airports again, Treasury Wines versus A2 Milk. And I make a wager with Anirban to get to the bottom of who we both think is going to receive a takeover offer. If they receive a takeover offer, which one will come first? And um, we talk about uh, West Farmers. And then we talk about the, the race that's on inside Buy Now, Pay Later with the two of the biggest global payments companies or technology companies entering the fray. So lots to talk about today. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Anirban, thanks for taking some time to join me again on the podcast, mate. Always love these chats. It is fantastic, Owen. Thanks for having me. We're going to give a shout out to um, our Twitter handles up front because we've had a lot of engagement, um, which we'll get to in just a moment. So you can find me on Twitter at Owen Rask, and I'll let you introduce yours, mate. Oh, my, mine is at 7A Mahanti, right? That's yep. at 7, 7 is the number, and A Mahanti, M H A N T I. And yeah, we love the interaction on Twitter. We, you know, I put out a little question out um, uh, with you and I uh, as a <laughs> CC'd on Twitter, as they say, or copied on Twitter, and we got a lot, lot of engagement. And we love the engagement because, you know, that tells us what you are interested in. And we want to talk about things that you are interested in. And we don't want to just talk about stuff that we are interested in. We would, we would talk about that too, but we would love to talk about stuff that is interests other people. Yeah, for sure. And that's where we, that's where we get this kind of a, agile feedback on a podcast. So if you're on Twitter, jump on, say g'day. Um, we've had some great, some great tweets and, and subtweets back to us this week. Um, and it's always a bit of fun to hear your thoughts. So please jump on. You can send us a message and um, we'll almost certainly respond to you. Okay, mate. So I thought maybe what we could do is just, um, it's been a week since we caught up. We're recording this on, on Wednesday, July 14th. Um, and anything interesting that's caught your eye this past week, anything that you've read or come across, um, I'm always interested to hear what other people are reading and what they find interesting. Yeah, so um, a couple of things. I've been actually doing some uh, digging into um, the state of payments in emerging markets. And you know, I actually wrote an article about this for, uh, it's not, I think it's going to be published in the next couple of days for Seven Investing. But you know, I, I think that's fascinating because you know, emerging markets as a whole happens to be a big, 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 big like market, right? If you think about just, if you just think about like a country like India, right? It's mm. got 1.4, 3.8, 1.38 or ne nearly 1.4 billion people. And uh, the GDP is about $3 trillion, right? So that's like, you know, a full 1.2 trillion more than Australia's GDP. Um, so, the, you know, that just basically ended that GDP is growing at a fast rate, which means there's a lot of opportunity there. But then many of these emerging economies have a lot of things that are, that are common. And as you know, they have lower penetration of, say, internet, um, uh, lower levels of education, of course, lower levels of earnings. 
all of that, if you turn turn it upside down, means opportunity, right? As the internet, you know, penetration or the smartphone penetration increases, you can get more access. Uh, more people can get online. More people getting online means there's you know a lot of online services. But you know what really was interesting to me is, and what is really interesting to me is this: what we think of as payments infrastructure here, uh, or m- more generally, you know, it's, let's say the OECD countries. That payment, that sort of payments model as such does not really work um, in the emerging economies, right? Because uh, for many reasons, right? You know, like the dependence on cash is, for example, a, a big reason, right? There's a lot of cash economy. There's a lot of uh, what, what's called unbanked people. So um, I was just looking at some stats. India now has, for example, the most number of fintech companies outside of the U.S., like, 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 you know, early stage startup fintech companies. Mm. So that, that's sort of interesting. And I'm just trying to see what's going on. Uh, I just, just, you know, without giving too much away of the article that I was writing, one of the things, one of my conclusions, I think, is that you can't take the models that apply here and, and then expect that similar models are going to work elsewhere, which basically means that if you're a big fintech player somewhere else, you may not be making money the same way that you made money, say, in Europe or America and Australia, right? And, and that's an opportunity for innovation, I think, you know, new sorts of models to come uh, come to play. And I think the good indicator there is to look at what has happened in China and the China's fintech model is substantially different in many ways. You know, their, you know, their digital wallet experience is substantially different uh, to many different, if, sorry if somebody heard a buzz, <laughs> somebody was messaging me and, and, and that's okay. <laughs> Um, anyways, uh, yeah, so that, that's something I read that was, I think, interesting. Continue. And a of, uh, <laughs> sorry. And, and a couple of other interesting things which you're going to talk about, you know, uh, later on in the, in the show. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what we read uh, this morning about Afterpay and Buy Now, Pay Later and uh, a few other things, right? Um, also about takeovers and stuff like that. One of the things that's interesting, Neban, is that um, Mercado Libre, with its Paygo feature in um, Latin America, has been around for quite some time. And when I was doing some research into that, I noticed that basically the technology is kind of leapfrogging the kind of traditional, you know, touch on with your card, you know, pay pay and go. Um, it's kind of going straight to mobile payments because there's like the terminal that PayGo provides where you can, if you're a merchant, you can just have a little function, uh, some functionality to just receive payments kind of like straight away, which is which is really neat. So it's kind of like leapfrogging some of the steps that we took here in Australia and indeed the US and the rest of the world, the developed world. Uh, absolutely. So here, I'll give you another fascinating thing. Okay. So um, during, uh, like, you know, through the COVID crisis, there's been a lot of uh, usage of e-commerce, right? So people are going on, you know, in India and things like Flipkart and um, Flipkart which is owned by Amazon, sorry, owned by Walmart and, and uh, Amazon and things like that to buy stuff online. But guess how they pay? Mm. <laughs> the, the, the a lot of people would pay cash on arrival. <laughs> so there is an option actually to pay cash on arrival and people pay cash on arrival. Cash is a big deal in, and, and you said Mercado Libre. That's just very, it's, uh, Mercado Libre, for example, is active in, in Brazil as well. Brazil has, you know, similar use of cash. Cash usage is very, very high. They have something called like bolitos, uh, bol- bolitos or mm-hmm. something like that, which is basically like, um, uh, a form of cash usage <laughs> that, that's quite common in, in, in that. So I, I think, again, as you said, there, there is an opportunity there to do things differently to how we do it. Largely, it's got to do with infrastructure and availability of, you know, um, of just things. And, you know, cash on arrival is, is, is interesting because you would think that most people who have a smartphone 
typically have a bank card, right? Typically should have a digital wallet. So why are they paying cash on arrival, right? You know, it's just, it's, I think there's a lot of cultural issues there as well. So it's an opportunity, I think, in, in, in sort of the long term. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, look forward to reading that one, mate. Um, so there was something else that I thought I'd just throw in because I'm a bit of a space nerd is um, for those of you who d- don't know, the space race is well and truly on again. And um, this time... Probably the, the company that I didn't expect to, to nail it first was uh, Virgin Galactic, the Sir Richard Branson's company, 71 years old. Richard Branson in the last week went basically into space, so 80 kilometers above uh, sea level, went into space for a couple of minutes. It's an interesting, it's an interesting one. I, made, I, meant, I imagine you're um, kind of across this whole space race thing, but nine days ahead of Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos going to space. Um, what's interesting is that this... I guess the the technology behind that. So, uh, in simple terms, uh, it uses effectively an airplane to get into, I guess, lower orbit, and then a rocket fires on a separate little uh, jet. You could think of it like that, like a rocket ship, and then that takes off into space for a few minutes, and it takes about fifteen minutes. Um, fascinating video. It's on uh, Twitter. We'll put links in the show notes too. What's interesting is um, immediately because I've, I've been watching the Virgin Galactic share price kind of fall from grace over many years, and <laughs> and then um, I thought it's actually had a really good run up recently in, in in the lead up to this, and um, it actually fell seventeen percent the day after the successful takeoff, and I was trying to figure out why, but it actually turns out there's another. Uh, capital raising coming so uh, i guess it makes sense but it's an interesting one it's a fascinating article and what's interesting is that probably by the time this podcast goes live we're only be a couple days away from blue origin also um going up into space so if you're into space like i am um yeah check it out it's it's fascinating stuff I love this thing. I, you know, like there's there's a lot of debate around, you know, this is like billionaires trying to go to space and things like that. And, you know, this is just like a, you know, rich rich person's club mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I think what sort of it misses the second order, third order effects, right? There's a lot of technology being developed, right? You know, what type of ship or what type of plane is going to fly at that supersonic speed and then still be, you know, intact and not burn, right? Um, how do you mm-hmm. take a, you know, and, you know, what sort of alloys do you need? Can, you know, if you can scale this, maybe you can actually make supersonic jet travel possible across Earth. Like you could technically think of, you know, something taking you to sort of that space level like this is like concord but you know beyond concord right you you go to the the edge of edge between the atmosphere and space um and you can from there then fly from say you know los angeles to sydney maybe in just a couple of hours <laughs> right uh that would be fascinating <laughs> if if that if and because what is interesting with virgin galactic thing is that it actually lands like an airplane right it actually lands like a plane which is which mm. is really really fascinating um, um compared to some of the other approaches which is which is basically rockets and then basically a capsule right um but you know uh, i thought uh, what, what i thought was very interesting is um uh, elon musk actually has a seat booked to travel in virgin galactic <laughs> so as much as you'd say mm-hmm. that spacex is a competition he actually has a seat booked to travel in the future he's, he's paid a ten thousand dollar deposit and he was there himself to you know spend i think he spent the evening with uh uh, Richard Branson, and he was there for the launch, and he you know, saw lots of pictures around. So you know, it's it's as much as it is a race, space race between these various people. This is a new market, right? And you know, they're just basically up creating a new market, mm. creating new opportunities. So you know, lots lots of pies to you know, you you can divide the pie in many different ways here. Yeah, and um, I think Jeff Bezos took to Twitter and congratulated Sir Richard Branson as well. So. Um, 
yeah, hopefully it's all kind of jovial and everyone's um, just happy to celebrate uh, others' success. But let's get back into some investing, mate. Let's let's talk about um, maybe this was a bit of tongue in cheek. I just wanted to throw this in there. Do you pay any attention to some of these? You know, it's the end of the financial year. Do you pay any attention to some of these? forecasts for the market going forward the asx 200 market forecast the the nasdaq forecast the dow forecast do you pay any attention to any of this stuff oh well you know i don't well here's the, the problem with the forecast is you could say that well there's a certain probability the market is going to go up there's a certain probability the market is going to go down doesn't matter what market it is there's a probability it's going to go up or go down and and you could the only forecast you can make is that over the long term, the market tends to go up. <laughs> I think that's a safe mm-hmm. forecast to make. Uh, everything else, there's a lot of you know, there's you know, you're going to ASX uh, 200 or 300 or ASX all odds is going to take out like the 8,000 level or things like that. There's forecasts like that. There's forecasts for Nasdaq, Dow, and things like that. So no, I I don't pay that much attention to um, the yearly forecast. I do think about sort of long term trends, like how are things going to shape up over you know five roughly five year horizons you know five plus year horizons i think that's useful um helps sort of you know think about investing and things like that but that's my take there's a tremendous presentation from morgan housel who showed i think it was using i can't remember who whose data he used but he effectively showed that the longer your time horizon if you just take the s&p 500 as your investment basket um, the longer you invest, the the more asymmetry there is in the returns that you achieve. So basically over a tw- any 20-year period for, say, the last 50 years, I can't remember the exact data, but any 20-year period, if you just held on, what would be the rolling returns you know, over that time? And um, basically in any 20-year period, if you invested for 20 years, um, you would have positive outcomes. And so the longer you you invest for, the, the more asymmetry you get from your investing. So when I look at these forecasts that are like 12 months, I'm thinking this is just, you know, <laughs> crystal ball gazing type stuff. Whereas say like the the Vanguard or, you know, any of those big um, financial institutions that tend to take a bit more of a holistic view and a longer term view, like a 10-year um, investment outlook, I'll occasionally read those um, as kind of a sanity check on, you know, where these researchers think markets will go and the Typically, you know, they're talking ranges of four to six percent per annum for a diversified portfolio. So it's not, you know, some of the crazy stuff you see where I think the ASX 200 is going to be at ten thousand in, in twelve months or something like that. So I tend to pay a little bit of attention to those, but really, you know, I think you and I are both in the same kind of group. Think here, um, it's more so about you know individual companies and, and looking at businesses bottom up, uh, focusing on the addressable markets, etc. So. Yeah, I just find it interesting. It's always financial year or calendar year. You get a heap of questions about this sort of stuff. Um, I pay little attention. Okay, mate. So one of the things from Twitter was um, takeovers. We spoke last week about um, Sydney Airport receiving a takeover from a consortium. Um, and then we, well, you asked basically who else could who would be a takeover target here in Australia. Things are really heating up. So um, we had some great responses on Twitter. Um, I guess firstly... Do you think there's more to come for Sydney Airport? Well, that's a good, you know, so somebody on Twitter actually pointed this out that, you know, infrastructure takeovers are complex or, 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 or the, the type of people that buy infrastructure is, is different from the type of people who buy other companies, right? So typically, you know, infrastructure would either be bought out by an infrastructure company or by, mm. uh, by another infrastructure company. Like, so somebody like Brookfield Asset Management, for example, might think that they want to buy um, Sydney Airport. But 
uh, you know, the, the range of people who are going to be interested in that sort of company is going to be small, or you could have big, you know, sovereign health, you know, sovereign wealth funds, you know, super funds, pension funds that invest in sort of, you know, that want steady returns that invest in. So there was a, you know, nice comment from one of, one of the listeners or, or one of the, uh, one of the Twitterati folks out there. Um, is there more hard <laughs> to say? <laughs> it's always hard to say. Like, you know, we talked about takeovers and, you know, our point, I guess, was that is this takeover market is heating up because I think there's some, uh, you know, consolidation opportunities and, you know, people are looking for growth and, you know, people are sort of see- seeing how the new order might be post-COVID and things like that. So there's a little bit of flux and these sort of flux environments are great for, you know, fishing and hunting of this sort and consolidation. Um, and what's interesting is that the examples we got on on Twitter, none of them mentioned the the two that got takeover <laughs> offers immediately right <laughs> so so the, the so so that's the other interesting it's sometimes very hard to predict what's going to be taken over right so api's one was not you know nobody mentioned api right i would have not ever thought that api um mm. you know as a chemist warehouse <laughs> is is of interest and the other one you know that, uh, that i had not not even heard of that company that uh, you know hello fresh is buying <laughs> So, uh, and then there was yeah. iCar Asia, right? So, so uh, iCar Asia has been actually on the on the shopping block, I guess, for some time. So, again, I'm not sure whether there are other people in for Sydney Airport. One of the things I think management typically don't think about is, you know, management think that I don't know. Again, I'm making this up, but maybe if the thought is that oh, there are going to be other people waiting to take over. Well, has any other takeover offer materialized for Altium? Sometimes there isn't. Right. Sometimes there's only like a few people interested in something, and if you pass on that, you've passed on it, and they don't come back. And maybe if things don't work out, you kind of look silly in retrospect, or you look like a genius in retrospect. Either is possible. You know, is a potential outcome. So I'm not sure whether there's somebody else interested in Sydney Airport. Hard to say. Um, it's an interesting asset in my view, as some people have pointed out. Yeah, I would say it's probably. If I was to just, this is just you know a thumb suck here. Like, um, if I was to guess i would say it's more likely that sydney airport could receive a takeover of a relative to say something like altium because altium's a software company where we talked about this last week it was more like synergistic in terms of the 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 would-be acquirers there's only say like four or five we identified those companies are probably the only natural buyers but for something like sydney airport it's actually different because the infrastructure is income producing it can also be stripped out sold for parts um, this is a few different things you can do it, and, and in that sense, it appeals to a lot of big, big asset owners and pension funds that are looking for real asset exposure in what is still a very low interest rate environment globally. So, um, I think there would be more buyers, at least in a consortium, than there would be for say Altium. But it's an interesting one. Um, this, have you ever toyed with the idea of using a strategy like merger, merger arbitrage, um, say like getting in front of some takeovers or exploiting the premiums have you ever done that no so uh, you could like okay so if i think so like my the only place where i would apply this is for example if i own shares in a company particular company and the company is not really executing properly mm. but i do think that they have useful technology or 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 an asset of value that i can i guess think of that there is some value here then the two pos- then the ways you can actually recoup 
the value, right? They're not executing right now, but, you know, they may execute is one potential. So they may hire the right people, you know, fire the board and put a new board in place. And therefore they can, you know, execute on a strategy that can then unlock value. So there's a, there's one pathway for succeeding from there. The other pathway for succeeding is that if you've got something valuable that somebody else might want, therefore there is a floor, right? And those can be interesting strategies. I don't like, I mean, there can be inter- interesting strategies if you can value things properly, right? So they, they work well where you can assign, ascribe a value, at least a fundamental value to the asset. Um, then one of the things one could do is buy, for example, if in, in a long call. <laughs> so you can, you can buy like a call, which is basically an option strategy. You can buy a call and then hope and buy a long dated call and, and then basically you can get a leveraged upside on it. Uh, if it doesn't work out, then you probably lose some money. So sometimes I, I very rarely do that. Uh, oftentimes it'll actually be on a company that I actually currently own. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reluctant or slow seller. Uh, so that basically means that I'm following the story. I know what's going on. I understand the company, I understand the technology if it's a technology company. And then I might consider, um, you know, buying some calls just, just to uh, have leverage upside. So it, instead of buying the shares, which would basically mean I'm just putting more money behind it, I'm putting less money behind it, but I get similar exposure mm-hmm. and therefore have upside. Of course, I have downside as well, but at least my downside is not capped by the amount of money I've put in um, for a similar amount of exposure. So I do that mm-hmm. sometimes, but very rarely, and I have to have high conviction on, yeah, it's, because otherwise the issue with, uh, the only other arbitrage potential is when you know that a buyout is like almost certainly going to happen or there's a high probability of it happening and the market is not ascribing. Again, these things don't happen because uh, market mm. participants would see it, right? And they would see and therefore the arbitrage would very quickly close. Um, so if you know an offer price is like, you know, $15 and the, sh- the shares are trading at like $13, you've got a $2 opportunity here, but you know, other people will see it as well. Typically, uh, most more often than not, it is hard for retail investors to to do this in a simple way. Basically, to to make money on these using a simple strategy is very hard because you know that'll be arbitraged away very quickly. Mm. Sometimes you can use, as I said, you know these derivative mm. strategies, but I wouldn't recommend these derivative strategies to anybody who doesn't understand how the underlying derivatives work because then you could get into trouble very quickly. Yeah, I think. Um... I think it was Peter Pan once said that it's kind of like picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Um, I've spoken to some merger ARB funds, some hedge funds, and typically, you know, they talk about how the strategy is a function of effectively like it's like a market neutral strategy in a way because if you have if you if you have that kind of legal background, which most investors don't have, um, and you understand how deals are constructed. Um, you can actually, you will actually see a lower kind of volatility in the share prices of takeover targets, especially when they're coming from a reputable buyer. And so then you can, I guess, incorporate that strategy into, like let's say you have a strategy where you invest in managed funds. You could incorporate that as a way to reduce the beta of your portfolio if that's what you're interested in. Um, for me, Aniban, it's it's almost always the case that I get disappointed when my companies get taken <laughs> over. I don't know why. I, I almost always just feel like, darn it, it's particularly here in Australia, right? Because we don't have that many great, um, like multi-year compounders um, that you think that you have really high conviction in over like decades. That you think this is a great long-term tailwind and, and whatever. Um, so when they get taken over, I get a bit disappointed. Um, Shout out to Value Down Under on Twitter um, at Down Under Value who who tweeted us and then followed up last night with some some great insight for me on Treasury Wines. He he's identified Treasury Wines as basically a business that um, 
is undervalued both on assets and probably on the operating business as well. So this is something that Lock, Lachlan Burr Jensen also pointed out is that um, Treasury Wines, for those who don't know, is basically a seller, uh, distributor and, and, and maker of luxury and premium wines. Uh, so the Penfolds brand is probably the one that most people know. And basically, D- Value Down Under was messaging me and effectively said that if you just take the value of the Grange that's still in the sellers that ha- is yet to be sold, it's actually carried at a value which is basically cost when the, the actual value is probably three times that amount um, in terms of per case. And then if you look at the vineyards, the vineyards are actually carried at cost as well. So they're not revalued like a REIT. Um, so you don't get that necessar- that see-through necessarily that you might get with, a, say, like a, a rural funds group, which is a company that they lease from. Um, so it's a really interesting business. And I think this comes back to your point, mate, around you, d- you probably don't necess- necessarily buy it for the the takeover. You might just say that that's probably a flaw because if it falls far enough, someone will buy it. Because whether it's for the assets or whether it's for the business, whether it's for the brands, someone will buy it. Um, it's just a matter of, I guess, taking a, a bet on that happening if that's your worst case scenario. So then I guess this all leads itself to maybe having some asymmetry, you know, um, in the sense that we know maybe what our downside could be if it's sold for assets versus, say, what the upside is if it achieves, say, it's 25% EBIT target, um, which I haven't done yet. But um, it's a really interesting play. And I think I think you also mentioned A2 Milk. I'm interested in what you, you had, to, had to say around that. Yeah, so uh, I think A2 Milk, so A2 Milk was, you know, had operating margins close to like 30%, or actually a little mm-hmm. higher than 30%, if I remember correctly, um, growing quickly. Um, so A2 Milk, in my, exa- in my view, was actually one of the few listed companies in Australia that are large and were growing at, say, 25% plus and have done that for a long period of time. That's actually really, really hard because, you know, you, you know, when you look at like sort of the blue chip, even in the tech side, like if you look at a seek or something, it grows at like 10%, right? Or, you know, it, mm. it, the average rate of growth basically slows down. That's, you know, pretty standard across like the SX200, for example. Um, this company was ahead of that, significantly ahead of that. Of course, it was much smaller um, if you look, I guess, the base, right? And... So in my mind, they they have a good model. They have a good model because effectively they're basically a branding company, right? So they're a branding company. They have you know some packaged goods that they're yeah, basically yeah. packaging and then selling. Um, those things tend to have decent margins if you can find a way to market mm-hmm. them. So it's a it's a sales and marketing company uh, which basically needs to find you know uh, people to get interested and then you know needs to find shelf space, right? And needs to find enough interest online that people mm-hmm. buy these things online. So now to your point, I think one of the things to remember here would be that the infant formula has been a big driver of the profits for this company, right? And the infant formula's profits have been driven in turn by Daigu sellers. So suitcase trade of people or and organized suitcase trade. Like so people who buy stuff locally, then take it somewhere to like you know Hong Kong and then sell it, you know, via e-commerce channels into China, right? The risk with that trade, though, is mm. that you are dependent on third parties, which are not really controlled by you, and 
whether or not you've actually created brand awareness or is it just, you know, uh, is it just because some certain people are pushing for the sales that the sales are going through and is it, you know, is it a fact? You don't know, right? So, that, so I think that, that's, that's, I think, where A2 Milk um, sort of hit the wall with uh, you know the covid and then this sort mm. of the uh, the um the suitcase trade basically drying up altogether and and then there being a lot of inventory and therefore having to discount that's that that's done some uh, does that's done some damage for them so but i i do think like you know uh they're a global company right so they have presence in asia but, and when i say asia that's beyond china um they have presence in america um they have a little mm. presence in the uk so this is a global company um and I think they may fit well with another, uh, you know, another company. Something like a Nestle, for example, might find that you, know, you can augment your brand. You can basically use everything that you currently have, but add another brand. Basically, it's just, you know, uh, sell, selling, giving people the multiple options of the same thing. And sometimes that is, you know, how you actually c- capture market share. Um, so I think there's, there's not, you know, at five billion market cap, I think it looks cheap. The one big red flag I have in my mind is that this sort of company has had a lot of turnover or churn in sort of the management level. And and um, I think yeah. that is sort of problematic because really, if it's a sales and marketing company, you need really management that's razor focused on that, right? There's nothing, there's not much else. <laughs> sales and marketing, efficiency, you know, mm. you know, basically having good deals for sourcing raw material, processing, putting it and getting it to the customers, right? So it's not a technology company that, you know, you need, like, you need people who are technology specialists to do this thing. Um, so I, I think the, mm. the churn at the top level is problematic. And, but I think there's some value here, potentially. And again, I think it puts a floor on sort of the share price to some extent. But again, is that a buy? Is that a thesis? Is, am I r- running, rushing to buy A2 Milk shares? No. If, um, if I had a two milk shares, maybe I'd think about it and say, "Well, okay, there's a floor." But I could have said that there was a floor when it was ten bucks, <laughs> and now it's five. You know, whatever it's like, you know, uh, or, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or I said there is a floor at you know at nine billion market cap or five billion market cap or whatever it is, right? You know, and the, <laughs> the floor just could keep shifting. Which is the risk with these strategies, right? Um, and and I think you know you probably need the numbers to if if we do the talking here. So I don't know. That's my thoughts on the. Uh, or that's my thought on a two milk. I'd probably see. So this is the one where I'd probably disagree with you a bit, and this is good—a bit of um, respectful disagreement. I'd probably say that of the two, Treasury Wines and A2, I would, if I'm thinking this way, I'd think more so with Treasury Wines because it has the asset backing. Capital light businesses like A2 Milk, in my opinion, are fantastic when things are going well, but they turn on a dime. Um, And you know, I I think I I agree that it's worth something. Everything is worth something to someone, right? But um, with that, they just did a deal in the in New Zealand where they got um, the Matura Valley uh, manufacturing side over the line, and I, I've been a bit cynical of that for a while. And, and basically, if you look at the web of companies behind A2 Milk, what you're getting is the brand, and um, they've got the deal with Sinlight and uh, Fonterra as well. But I think the if 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 I take a counterpoint to my own stance, which is that it's probably the, the floor may be actually lower than it already is, and it still is. Um, the counterpoint to that would be, well, like you said, they've got a great brand that they can, that someone else can leverage. If it's a Chinese-backed company in particular, I think that might be interesting. Um, the other thing, I, I guess, is that a, a buyer might look at this and think, well, maybe we can separate the infant formula from the milk. 
Um, maybe there's a way to do that and maintain brand value, or maybe we separate, you know, the channel going into China versus the channel that goes to the US or something like that. Because like most people listening to this would know that A2 milk is stocked in every Woolworths, Coles, IGA, et cetera, around Australia. It's a good product, right? People buy it. And I, and if, and I know you pay more for it. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think maybe that, that, that link to China need someone who's a which a company that is a specialist in that area um to unlock the maximum value whereas say with treasury wines we have maybe similar to nestle but similar we we it's different in the sense that constellation brands many other um ricard i forgot the um name of the french company that does this similar there's thing. diago there's diago um yeah. diago as well right so yeah, okay, sure. okay, this is this is this is interesting. Okay, so we can debate this. Um, so I'm going to take it uh, take take this. I'm going to agree with you and then disagree with you a little bit, just for just for making it more interesting. So here's my counter argument, right? So let's say we're looking at the EBIT or EBIT S or whatever you know Treasury uses, right? So I think personally, I think the this is my personal view. I think the um, Treasury brand is overrated. Highly overrated in my view, right? And here's how I'll here's how I'll use my argument. If Treasury brand is that valuable, how come its EBIT margin or EBITDA margin equivalent operating margins are actually less than A two milk? A two milk's margins are better than Treasury's, right? A two milk actually has cash <laughs> on the balance sheet, right? So actually, it's a stronger company if you think about it. Now, I think I think this is what I call the fallacy of of looking at it from our point of view, we think that Penfold is a great brand, but you know, take Penfold out of China for two years, nobody's going to remember it, right? Because you know, when you when you think about the, the, the great wines, you think about you know the uh, the Bordeaux region in France, and and that is wine, right? <laughs> for for like, if you think of high class wine, that's what you're going to think about wine. Right? So I think that's the thing. The thing with these things is it's very fungible, and um, so I think the again, you know, the asset here may not be, the asset could be a liability, right? I mean, you might have you might have uh, uh, these wines that you have, you know, are holding at forty dollars. Maybe they actually sell at twenty dollars. You don't know that. The other thing I'll point out is this is where this is where the similarity is between both Treasury and A two, is that they were both making money off China. And one of the questions I like to ask any investor, shell investor, think about is. There has been this story that's been going around. Oh, you know, we are selling clean green and this and that. But Switzerland can also sell clean green, right? You know what I mean? Like New Zealand can also sell clean green. Clean green is by itself not an asset. <laughs> what I think has happened is that, you know, and this this is the same story that has happened with Blackmores too, right? Blackmores was on the China bandwagon until it was not, right? And I think this is under-investing sort of in... Um, so I think that there's a, there's an issue here, and this there might be here something that um, a two milk might have an edge, is if you if you want to succeed in a local market, you have to have the local market ties, right? And those local market ties need to be strong enough that you can weather local market storm, right? So uh, you don't become a liability in in you know. So Nike didn't have to. Take its product out of China is the my you know example because people need sneakers and those sneakers are made in China, right? So a lot of sneakers are made in China. So I think that, that matters. So I think, I think it again it comes down to you know your view is different from my view and 
the reality might be that the buyers for both of them actually need to be in China, <laughs> just like you know Bellamy's was acquired by a Chinese group, um, and uh, maybe uh, you know maybe some wine group in China has ambitions of being you know a constellation brand equivalent competitor or a Diageo competitor, and they might think of acquiring um, a Treasury, right? But I would say that you know they're, they're similar in that respect. It, the final point I would say is that a lot of the Treasuries. Um, Treasury had very high margin business in China, right? Take that high margin business out and the margins drop, right? So somebody would have to think about that as well if they're buying it, right? And they have to be confident that they're going to get that same margin back if they buy it. So I think there's, there's a, there's, what I've never understood is why would the margins be substantially higher in one region versus another region? This, you know, um, this I, I, I quite never figured out as to what, you know, one would think, like if I think about iPhones, the iPhones margins are pretty consistent across regions. They they vary a little bit um, for forex reasons, but they wouldn't vary substantially, right? So it, it points to different taste or different sort of development stages of the market. <clears throat> Why would someone pay substantially more for an A2 milk produced in with uh, with Australian label versus <laughs> with Chinese label? You know, again, those things. You know, those things seem very transient and transitory in nature to me. Um, but again, so I think there's some similarities. But yeah, I take a point that um, for different, maybe maybe the thing that works in Treasury's favor is that there are these companies which have grown significantly by. Uh, margins and acquisitions. So like, you know, uh, Diageo has like, you know, bought and sold and bought and sold stuff, right? Mm. So that probably helps. Mm. All right, over yeah, to you. Now you can rebut. Really you can rebut. Yeah, 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 no, I, 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 yeah, I think we agree on a lot and um, it's just kind of on the edges where we might, on the margin where we might have some sort of differences in opinion. Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I guess, the Penfolds brand is still very strong in parts of Asia outside of China, so that's also something interesting. Um, how, okay, so I, I, I'm kind of going. I'm going to back Treasury Wines here to to be a takeover target before A2 Milk. But how about I put you on the spot and we and we we make a, a pact that if Treasury Wines gets the takeover offer first, you buy me a bottle of Penfolds, and if A2, I'll get you the equivalent in A2 Milk. That that's like sounds that like I'm going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the deal maker. How okay, much conviction I'll do you still, have? Um, well, here's the deal. I'll buy you uh, the cheapest penfold I can afford. <laughs> so I'll buy you the I'll buy you the thirty dollar penfold. Okay, fine. I'll buy you the forty dollar penfold. <laughs> that's how. That's how much I'm willing to actually. You know, I am the wine buyer who goes to Costco. To, buy cheap wine so clearly i'm not the penfolds guy out here you know my wine caps out at like 30 dollars <laughs> i can't tell the difference between, i can't really tell the difference between a 30 dollar wine but okay i'll take your deal uh you might be actually right on this one i think treasury has a higher probability of being taken out um before uh mm. before a2 milk but we'll mm. see Okay, we'll see, and we can we can share the wine and see if we can taste the difference. I don't actually drink Penfold, so I'm I'm kind of out of my depth here as well, mate. I'm just in the in the interest of time. Let's let's just um, maybe have a quick discussion about um, just just so people that are aware of it. HelloFresh, which is a big European listed company, has bought U Foods, Hunt, or was planning to buy U Foods, which is a Brisbane based ready made meal company for 125 million dollars. Uh, really interesting company. 
Um, it looks like the deal is going to go ahead because the majority shareholder has said yes. Um, iCar Asia, which is a platform to uh, find cars, kind of like car sales. Car sales is actually a shareholder of iCar Asia, um, has received another takeover offer. They did receive a takeover offer from China's Auto Home last year at fifty cents. The new one. I think it is at $0.55. Cents. It's a $200 million deal. And basically, it's from a, um, a company called Carsum, which is a business that goes beyond just the platform and connects the cars to dealers who then can you know, finance the transaction, can make sure that goes ahead, et cetera. Really interesting um, deal. Uh, you can, that's a new deal, a new deal this week, so you can learn more about that by going to the ASX, um, I guess, news for the company. Um, and the final deal was API, which is from... Uh, for, so the, the the acquirer would be West Farmers, who's the owner of Buddings um, and Officeworks and Kmart, and they're looking they're looking to acquire Australian um, pharmaceutical industries or APIs, it's commonly known, um, which is interesting to me, mate, because Sol uh, Pattinson, Washington Heights Sol Pattinson, run by the Milner family, um, owns nineteen percent of API and has done for a very long time, uh, said yes, uh, said they would they would support the deal. So I thought that was a bit. Uh, I did not expect that, as you said at the top of the show. I did not expect that. Yeah, well, what's well? If if you've held the shares from the very beginning, you're still underwater, I guess, minus yeah. the dividends and stuff like that. So after a while, people get tired and say, "Okay, fine, you know, you want to take this off me? I'll give it to you. Take it, be my guest." So, yeah. so I'm, I I don't know anything about about the underlying, you know. Um, uh, underlying discussions and stuff like that and whatever has been published. But I think, you know, if I was a shareholder from 1997 or whenever and it's still underwater, I'd say, okay, fine, take it, <laughs> be my guest. <laughs> so, so, yeah. um, but, but Soul Pats is also in the process of, you know, merging or this mega merger, right? So there might be some freeing up of cash as well that might happen. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's an interesting one. And why don't we move on to something a bit more, um, I guess, relevant to technology investors, which is basically what you and I tend to be most of the time, is um, we've heard um, this week that there are some big companies pushing further and further into the buy now, pay later space. Um, we learned a few months ago that PayPal um, was coming to Australia with its buy now, pay later product. It's already around the, around the world. Um, and more recently... Um, Apple has is looking like it's going to team up with Goldman Sachs. This was kind of rumor. Uh, this is the rumor mill that Goldman Sachs is basically providing the finance for Apple Pay Later, which is a new product um, set to be rolled out, which is different to to the credit card you you might be familiar with from Apple if you're in the states. Um, mate, did you maybe want to just give us a, a kind of rundown on what what these two companies are doing? Yeah, so so the PayPal one is inter PayPal one is interesting because of the of the way they're doing it. So PayPal has launched this in the US already, but in Australia they're doing something I think is interesting, which is basically saying that they're not going to charge late fees. Uh, late fees is a big late fees happen to be a big component of the earnings, or because you know it's like you know hundred percent margin earnings in some sense, right? You people forgot to pay for whatever reason, and and then you basically tacked on uh, tacked that on, and it was a big uh, big component. I think seventeen percent of afterpays revenues. Uh, after pays revenue or something like that in twenty twenty. I think expected to drop significantly this year because again revenue growth and things like that. You know, and and I guess better management of people uh, who tend to pay late uh, or better identification of people who tend to pay late. Um, but that's interesting, and um, and then the Apple one is interesting because you know that is basically very native, right? So it's it's going to be on the card, Apple Pay. So it's going to be on top, built on Apple's Apple 
Apple credit card and built on top of that to be like a native, which basically when you go to pay, you can basically say I want to pay in four installments. And you would have a, I guess, um, a free option of paying over a certain number of weeks or an option of paying a little bit of interest and paying over a certain number of months. That's at least what the rumor mills are saying. So a couple of things about this. There is no doubt that Afterpay, I think, as the leader in this segment, has basically put buy now, pay later on the global map. So this is like really credit to Afterpay, right? Mm. Like, I mean, um, this is one of those a few examples of an Australian technology company taking an idea that they have actually homegrown here in ANZ and then taking it, exporting abroad. So I, I'm really a big supporter of that. I think this is really cool. Um, it might, so this might be a little bit of, okay, other companies making your product their feature. This is a problem for for the company who's, you know, after his entire business is buy now, pay later. Uh, Apple doesn't really care or PayPal probably doesn't really care about this. For them, it's a, it's a feature that enables people to use other things that they do um, or provide, which means, you know, more customers, more merchants, and they can, you know, PayPal can make money off their merchants, merchant base, and things like that. This is a feature for Apple. It's basically a convenience feature, right? You know, well, you know, we're going to provide you something that you seem to think that you need, right? Um so this is this is mm. problematic in that sense. But here's another way to think about it. And the way to think about this is this also indicates that buy now, pay later is not a fad. Buy now, pay later is going to stay. Buy now, pay later is going to go mainstream, right? Mm. The fact that Apple, potentially Google, and everybody else is probably going to launch this basically means that this is going to go mainstream. This is actually bad for the tier two, tier three, tier four players in the buy now, pay later space. They, they're going to be in trouble. Afterpays, I think, going to be okay. Its margins are probably going to get, you know, uh, you know, compressed a bit. The other thing is, from a consumer's mm. point of view, there's nothing stopping me from having Afterpay and Apple Pay and uh, PayPal Pay if everybody's going to give me the deal to, you know, <laughs> to defer my payments. I might take it, right? So there's that that aspect for consumers. Just like they have got multiple credit cards in their pocket, mm. they might have multiple buy now, pay letters in, the, uh, in their pocket. It would, I think, uh, reduce the ability of Afterpay to, say, charge 6% or whatever they charge from the merchants, right? I think that's the the thing. But Afterpay, I think, is already up on its game, right? It's It's changing its app into basically a marketplace, right? And it's using its existing yeah. customer base to feed to become a sales lead, right? So that can have its own, you know, you can think of the Afterpay app as basically a mini Amazon app, right? Where you basically are, um, you know, a little network of all these people who want to buy things. You therefore have data of what people are interested in. Therefore, you can advertise to them. So you could potentially think of that app becoming an advertising platform over time. So there's there's avenues here. It's really, uh, I think my famous, my favorite line here is, um, it is great if you, a couple of lines, one from Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos' line is, it is rare in technology to to have a couple of years of leadway, uh, you know, like, you know, mm. a head start. A couple of years of head start is a big deal. Uh, AWS had like six years of head start. That's sure. unheard of. That gives you substantial, like, distance between you and others. I think in this case, uh, Afterpay probably has like three, four years of headway, which is, I think, pretty substantial as, you know, it it basically, I think that business is not at stake. No, number, number two thing is that uh, what really matters in technology is pace of innovation. Right. Your stuff is going to get mm. copied if it can be copied. In, in many things, you know, some things are less, you know, uh, less affected by copying, but, you know, copying is good for consumers, but the pace of innovation matters. And I think Afterpay is 
is the company that has the capability of fending off these big guys because they've invested in top top end talent they've got you know they've hired people from paypal and things like that uh they're always thinking about the next steps so i think they will be fine um whether or not the valuation of afterpay is appropriate or not, that's a separate question uh, altogether but i think afterpay as a company should be okay and sure. um, yeah so that's that's my thoughts on uh, thought I, i'm curious what you think yeah, no, I, I agree with basically everything that you said. Um, I remember when Jeff Bezos did that interview with um, um, Bloomberg, he effectively said how surprised he was. And he said the only competitive advantage in technology is time, basically. Um, and, but, you know, there's, I guess there's nuance around that. But uh, this is an interesting one. And I was thinking more broadly about Afterpay. I think the writing's been on the wall for Afterpay for probably one to two years that the merchant fee and the late fees are just going to be competed away. There's no way that they can get away with still charging the same amount unless they turn it into a marketplace because they have the, their aggregator status. But I remember, mate, when, when I first met you, I think this was five years ago, um, maybe even longer, you came to Melbourne and you had the, um, the first generation of the Apple Watch and you were using um, that to pay at the restaurant. And I remember you saying that this could be a pretty very big thing for Apple. And I think the thing that we're starting to see now is what many kind of early stage investors have realized for quite some time is that basically the aggregator wins, right, in this race or could or should win insofar as if the buy now pay later is just a tiny little function that's going to be built into this already huge payments ecosystem that Apple is developing. You know, they already make a very small but important clip from Apple Pay and I use it every day. So they're making money from me without me even noticing. But it's actually not compared to some of the buy now pay later merchant margins. It's actually not that um, not that bad for the for the merchants themselves because they're copying it from some of these these companies like Afterpay, Hum, Sezzle, Affirm. You know, these companies are taking their pound of flesh for providing that gateway. But I think if you look at say PayPal's numbers, nine million accounts in Australia, three hundred ninety million globally. Then they've got Venmo. You know, they've got so many ways that they can also kind of widen that that um, that wallet to include so much more. And I think Afterpay has to go along to, to that race. Like they have to kind of find a way to capture what they've already, to keep the guys that they've already got, the sticky customers, keep them on in the ecosystem, but also widen the ARPU from those users. Um, I think that's going to be essential to them going forward. I, like you, maybe I don't really have a view on the current share price of Afterpay, but I think this is really, really interesting. I'm an owner of PayPal and Apple. Do you, do you own these two companies? Uh uh, I don't uh, own PayPal, but I do own Apple shares. I've been an Apple shareholder for a long time. So um, I should have held, I guess, PayPal. <laughs> PayPal shares have done very well over, I guess, the last decade. Um, but yeah, I don't own Afterpay either. So No, me neither. Yeah, and I just think, um, you know, I, I, I tend to agree. Like it's the, the, the second tier buy now pay letters that are, are going to find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place because the merchants are going to prioritize Google Pay, um, or Google Wallet, Apple Pay, um, PayPal, all of these merchants that bring them traffic, they're going to prioritize them at the checkout. Um, there's no ifs, buts, and maybes about that. So that's really interesting. Okay, just in the, in the interest of time, mate, I've got one more question. I've got two questions for you. I'm hoping you can answer like a quick fire. Um, given that you spoke about innovation and that's what's important, most overrated company for innovation? 
Oh, okay, so uh, I'll, uh, this might be controversial. I, I think um, Google's AI is overrated. <laughs> Google's AI is overrated because they, dem they demo stuff that basically can't be put into production. So demoing is easy, production is hard. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't do good AI, but you know, people think that they're a great AI company. So their AI is probably pretty compatible with everybody else's AI. Uh, they're good, okay. but they're not as ahead as people think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. What about most underrated company for innovation? I have. Uh, I think Tesla. Of who um, uh, Tesla. So the, yep. the reason for that is very simple. Like what Tesla gets done with its R and D, uh, level of spend is pretty phenomenal, and their pace of engineering and uh, you know, like their voiceover in the car works better than the voiceover on Siri. Uh, you know, it's that good. And uh, you know, the stuff that they're doing with um, FSD, the full self driving suite, that you know, the new new one that has been out, and the videos that have been out. There's some crazy stuff that's happening just based on vision. Um, so I, I think again, I think they're very underrated. Um, you know, their their pace of innovation is very very fast. So that whether it comes to de developing the self driving computer, um, or you know the algorithms or the data labeling work that they're doing, there's there's phenomenal amount of innovation that's happening. And yeah, mm. I think it's very underrated. Yep, great one. Okay, we, we promised to end or we promised to have at least one personal finance point in the episodes that we do together. So I'll just throw one on the end here, which is um, adding to super. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the um, concessional or before tax limit on adding to your super fund went up from 25000 to 27500 Um So let's just use an example to explain what this means. Everyone should now be getting at least 10% super paid from their employer into their super fund. So if your wage is $100,000, uh, let's say for round figures, you get $10,000 added to your super from your employer. Typically, this is taxed at just 15%. So it's less than your actual tax rate when the, compared to the money that actually goes into your bank account. There's less taken out. So that's a good thing. The key thing to remember is that there is a limit on how much money can be put into super at this reduced rate before it starts incurring higher tax. That limit has increased from 25 to 27,500 meaning most people on 100k could get the, could get um, the $10,000 added to their super and then top it up with extra from in the form of a salary sacrifice which you negotiate with your employer or if you make tax deductible um, deposits into your super fund and you do that by making the deposit and then um, filing something that's called a notice of intent to claim a tax deduction form with your super fund um, and so basically an example would be you're earning 100k there's 10K already going in from your employer. You could put an extra, say, 200 bucks in a week, which is $10,400 a year. Um, and that money would be taxed at the reduced rate of 15% compared to your marginal tax rate. So why would you do this? Money inside super is taxed at a reduced rate, typically. It's also, um, so therefore, it's a more effective way to put money aside for retirement. But it also, because you can claim a tax deduction on what you put in extra up to that limit, um, it tends to make sense from that perspective as well. Why wouldn't you do it? This is my quick version. I'm just trying to be as quick as possible. Why wouldn't you do it? You wouldn't do it because you don't want to wait to retirement until you crack into your super dollars. You'd rather have more flexibility over your investments today. Many super funds are great in the sense that you can still buy individual shares on the ASX or globally, um, or you can buy into funds, ETFs, that type of thing. Um, common mistakes people make, in my opinion, um, starting a self-managed super fund when they don't necessarily need one, overcomplicating super, just keep it really simple. Like there's some great funds out there that charge you next to nothing for, for the right to invest. Um, and if you learn more about your super, most people listening to this would already know about it. But if you learn more about your super and investing generally, you'll get more comfortable with taking risk, which you should be taking if your money's tied away for such a long time. 
So you can stay up to date with the rules on tax and super via the ATO website. Um, I did a podcast with um, Jacob Fennick, who's a, an accountant from PwC, just two weeks ago on his 10 tax time tips. There's a heap of them just like this one. So um, we'll put a link in the show notes. Whew. That was a that was the quick fire on super, mate. <laughs> I love it. And I think I have nothing to add to that because you covered everything brilliantly. <laughs> Okay, well, that's the personal finance slash investing tip for, for this week. Um, mate, if listeners want to find out more about what you're doing at 7 Investing, they want to get their hands on that, um, I guess, um, cashless society in emerging markets, that report that you're doing, um, kind of digging up some of this payment, um, I guess, ecosystem and the, the evolution of that. Where can they go to find that report? Well, you know, you'd have to be a member for 7investing, so you have to go to 7investing.com slash subscribe, or they can use your referral link at the bottom of the show notes uh, and, and, I guess, get $10 off uh, and, mm-hmm. and join. Um, yeah, we have a lot of free content that's available there as well. Uh, so if you could just go to 7investing.com, there's, you know, free podcasts and you know, free articles and things like that. But there's, there's a lot of premium content as well. I guess very similar to what you do at Rask. We, you know, we have some free content and some premium content behind the paywall. Mm. And you, you have the podcast as well, Seven Investing. So um, all the links in the show notes, um, we were just talking off air about how, um, like what people care about when it comes to content. And I, I definitely am a big fan um, of everything you guys are doing. And, and that's why I'm so grateful to have you on the show, mate. So um, yeah, if you, if you need to find out more and you want to find out more, especially how to invest in like these kind of bleeding edge companies, um, seveninvesting.com. You can learn more about the service that I run, which is ASX listed companies predominantly and ETFs. Uh, we provide lots and lots of research on those with a brilliant team here at Rask. Um, the, the, the URL is rask.com.au. Mate, always a pleasure to chat. Thanks for taking some time today. Mate, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs>